Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs, benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theater masters, founders, and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Today, I have a wonderful guest, an improviser, director, coach, author from across the pond, and her name is Katie Shute. Hello, Katie. Hi, Margo. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, I'm so glad we were able to get together because I know you have a very busy class, uh, schedule and that your <laughs> classes fill up really, really quickly. So um, are you still at Hoopla? Is that where you are today? Or where are you teaching at Hoopla? And 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 you were part of the Mayfair since the beginning. Are you still with them? I, I teach with Hoopla regularly, yeah. And I wrote their curriculum at one point as well. I'm one of their head teachers. Um, and they're the UK's largest school. Uh, I left the Maydays last year, but I'd been with, been with them for 18 years. So I felt like wow. that was probably long enough. <laughs> I love Maydays, and I know them for musical improv, which I adore. I adore. So um, I like to ask people about their improv journey. And I know you went to acting school. And had you studied improv or been aware of it before you went to acting school? Um, I, in retrospect, I realized that I did some, some short form theater games stuff when I was at school, but they didn't call it improv or short form, but they just used those kind of drama games. And I really enjoyed it. And I actually would skip, uh, my, my English class to go to the other half of the year's drama class. So basically did two drama classes and they just let me do it for some reason <laughs> or didn't notice. <laughs> So yeah, I had done improvisation. And actually I did a degree in theatre, which, um, and if you train to be an actor, you'd normally go to drama school for one or two years afterwards. And I didn't do that. So I have a theatre degree, which involves a lot of acting and performance, yes. um, but isn't pure acting, yeah. Now, were you interested in acting as a child? Was that something you immediately were attracted to or the other arts? Tell me about your, since I'm a therapist, tell me about your childhood. Ooh. <laughs> I love it. Um, I actually thought I would be a visual artist when I was a kid. I, I was like, I'm going to be a graphic designer and I'm going to make 50K a year. I thought when I was like 10, <laughs> that was my decision. And then I did my A-levels, which is like when you're between 16, 18. Um, and art, the art homework was a lot. Like it was so much work and I found it really hard and it and it was fun, but I realized it wasn't my top favorite passion. Meanwhile, I was taking um, a theater class as well, and I was enjoying that so much. I think I'd always been a, a writer, but it was only later that I decided I liked performing. I never thought like, oh, I should be an actor. That's almost been a sort of accident. <laughs> um, but I would say writing was my first love. And obviously there's a lot of that in improvisation. So Yes, there is. And of course, we're going to talk about your book in a bit, The Improviser's Way. Well, let's talk about it right now. But I will come <laughs> back to childhood because I think that's always an important aspect of how we become improvisers. The Improviser's Way, a long form workbook. Tell me how you got inspired to write that and how long it took to write it and the process. Sure. So... I was teaching and, and still am teaching in a lot of different countries and in places where there's not a massive improv scene yet. And I realized that or, or people ask me when I was leaving after, you know, a week or a couple of weeks, people would be like, what do we do next? <laughs> and there wasn't as much online improv culture as there is now since the pandemic. So I wrote the book partly to give people another 12 weeks of work that they could do with the, the groups that they'd formed independently so that they could do it alongside anything that they could learn, but mostly for kind of small communities or remote communities that didn't have a lot of access to experienced improv teachers. So that was why. Um, 
And you asked me before if it was inspired by Julia Cameron, and it definitely was. I love The Artist's Way and Walking in the World and all those kind of books. And I really like having a method, something that tells you like, right, this week you're doing this, you know, to give you these lovely segments of time. Or if you're working with a group, you can be like, okay, well, we know which bit to work on on Tuesday night or whenever your rehearsal is. So I like that. I did actually try and write to Julia Cameron and go, do you mind if I do the, (laughs) do you mind if I call it the improvisers way? But it's impossible to get in touch with her because she's really famous. Um, But obviously she's based it on kind of AA and other kind of structured um, courses and stuff. So it's, yeah. I think it's okay. <laughs> and it's kind of Zen in a way. I was just talking to a friend on a podcast who connected spirituality and improv. And I think there's mm. such a connection between the two. I think so too. And actually in the last few years, I've been doing something called the mythic improv journey. And that's, we do eight sessions throughout a year and it's tied in with the old like Celtic festivals, fire festivals, like the equinoxes oh. and the solstices. Yes. And we use, we use improvisation as a sort of ritual practice rather than a show. So it's just for the people in the group and it's really lovely. And there's a lot of personal growth in there as well as just enjoying improv. So I completely well, agree with you. <laughs> and improv is about discovery, self-discovery and the oneness between us all, I think. That sounds kind of corny. But, um, no, I like, I'm, I'm down with corny and hippie. That, that's, that speaks to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you don't teach short form, right? You teach long form right away, or do you do games and exercises? And so well, tell me about the first class that people come into when they're taking a workshop with you. What do you do? Um, well, there's annoyingly not a straight answer to that. And I do teach short form for Hoopla. So they their school goes short form class, short form class with a show at the end, then a scenes class. So just kind of working on scenes without that framing of short form games. And then it's long form and then a whole bunch of other classes. So that's for Hoopla. That's how I would teach. Mm. Um, but then if it's me independently, it depends what that scene needs, what they've done before, who I'm coaching. If it was totally up to me and it was someone's first ever class, it would be interesting to see why they want to do it and what what they're excited about. If they want to make plays, then obviously long form. And if they wanted a, a quick, fun comedy show, then maybe I would go short form. So I just, I'm just flexible, babes. <laughs> Great. Great. Keep doing that yoga. You're doing great. Yeah. yeah <laughs> um, well, I heard recently that it was Michael Gelman from who was at Second City for many years, who I love, that actually started the term long form. So when oh, we yeah. long form, can you give a definition for some of our listeners that may not be improvisers out there? Yeah, sure. So for my definition anyway, it's different whoever you speak to, but for me, short form is something where there is a frame and a director, even if the director is one of the cast where um, the scene that you play is in some way contained within something. So they, the director might say new choice and then you change the last thing you said and that will create an automatic laugh or response in the audience. So it's quite safe in a way because there's a structure that supports you. If you don't achieve it, then it's funny. And if you do achieve it, it's quite funny. So it's like feels nice and safe and a good place to start for that reason. Whereas I would say long form, you're trying to find that container for yourself while you're playing the scene. So it doesn't matter if it's one scene or a whole sh- like hour long show, but you're looking for the patterns, you're looking for the the reflections within the scenes yourself. And that's just a little bit harder. Um, and whether you're trying to do it for comedy or, or narrative, it doesn't really matter, but you need to be super aware of those patterns and trying to fulfill um a connection with the other person so that's how i would say they were different that's great it's really a mindful process i mean all of improv is mindful, i think and so when you teach short form games what are some of the games you like to teach katie (laughs) i just actually just finished teaching a level two class and they did a great show and i really loved it i really like good bad worst advice and maybe i'm saying that because (laughs) you've told me you're a therapist (laughs) and so i'm like great Right. Um, I think that's very funny. Um, just because I think we really respond to 
having something that's quite genuine, genuine and vulnerable, which is the good advice. The bad advice is just funny because it's like, oh my gosh, don't say that to someone that's really bad. And then worst advice being like, just really bizarre. <laughs> so that's a good fun one. But I love a lot of games actually, yeah. I do too. So um, now I know you studied in the Second City. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you remember any of your teachers at Second City who you studied with? Who did I have? I had uh, Brian Posen. I had, um, oh, there was a script writing teacher who was really good, Mary Scruggs, and she's passed away now, but she was amazing. Um, I think they were the main two. Also, Nancy Walker, who's my first musical improv teacher. Like, yes, I love Nancy Marshall. Yes, I love Marshall. Yes, I love and Marshall. and Mike Dakota was the musician as well. He's great. He's in Boston. Yes, so, I love yeah, incredible. You know, Mike's a captain on an air or, uh, airline now. It's so funny. He really amazingly. He oh my gosh, he inspired me to go in. Um, my partner bought me a flight for my birth. So I, I had a flying lesson partly inspired by <laughs> by Mike, which he knows I did let him know. Um, that's so, yeah, terrific. that's incredible. Yeah. yeah and, and Dina was one of my first uh, musical improv teachers. I started with Stacey Smith yeah. and then went on with uh, Dina and Laura Hall, which was oh, really, yeah. wow, star power. Um, yeah. But uh, so you always like to sing, even as a child? Yeah. And actually, I was in kind of, you know, school choirs and stuff, which I always found quite difficult, actually, and, and had a lot of anxiety. I loved singing, but I was always worried about getting it wrong. So it was really nice to have musical improv where, you know, you're obviously we're striving to be the best we can. But like all improv, if there's a mistake, then the pianist just changes key or everyone supports your choice. And that's really lovely. And I don't have to remember anything, which is half of the stress taken away as well. So, yeah, I loved it. I, I was so I was very terrified going to my first musical improv class. So I always appreciate when people come to me and they're like, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm like, yeah, I know, but it's going to be your favorite. <laughs> and gonna, it is, you know. I know. I just love it. It's such a great thing. To do. And singing is so good for our mental health and our well-being and our bodies. So one of the things I admired um, about the book, because I haven't read it yet, I will admit, and there's a few books by women on improv, like Sharna wrote hers. My friend Amy Selim wrote Whose Improv Is It Anyway? Mm -hmm. um, Patrice Madsen. Um, but there's, there's mostly a man-dominated field, just like improv used to be. Mm -hmm. It's getting better. But I, I noticed that Susan Messing wrote the introduction, and she's a delightful person. <laughs> and one of the things that attracted me in the intro to the book is that, you know, ways to cope with a couple of things. The first one was bad gigs. Can you describe mm. a bad gig for me, for us? Yeah, yes. And I think it's partly not just having what I perceived as a, a as bad shows, because we all have them, I think, but, but more like our attitude to them and how important they are. So I've kind of included some uh, almost essays about my experience of bad gigs, what I did about them, how I reacted to them, and the lessons I kind of learned from that. So it was things like, um, after a show now, pretty much every show I do, I try and get people to do a um, circle of awesome, and in classes as well, where we just share the things that we thought were great. So if you had a show that you didn't like or you weren't happy with, you still spend the time, more importantly then, to go, hey, you know what? I love the character you played or that was such a funny line or this moment was really beautiful and and focusing on those things and then in rehearsal is the time to actually fix stuff when you're like okay actually our object work was terrible or we messed this or we dropped this like so what do we do what can we actually do to action to change to make our next show better and then because you're actively developing it or changing it or putting it in rehearsal then it's still positive Whereas right after a show, if you're just like, well, that was terrible, <laughs> we all hate ourselves. You just sort of go away with that feeling and it doesn't help your next show. So celebrate the show and then go work on it when you've got a specific time set aside to fix the things you want to fix, I think. Exactly. Now, the topic of jealousy. Mm. When I started, I was always comparing myself to others, you know, and let's hear, I'd like to hear your take on jealousy and improv. 
Yeah, I think, you know, it's a product of our education system to some degree, I think, where everyone's like rated all the time and like, who's the best or, you know, as you say, you compare yourself to other people, like, where am I on the on the ladder of this or that? Um, and so I forget who said this recently, but they were talking about like, your career shouldn't be a ladder, it should just be an open playing field where you can go wherever you want, you know, just go where the fun is, go where the joy is. And I think but in, in terms of jealousy, I think we can flip it and find out, well, what do you what do you want that that person or that that group has that you don't have? And how do you go about achieving that for yourself? And often in that reflection, you go, actually, I don't think I want that. I, I just see it being like applauded and therefore that's what I want. So what do I actually want to make or what do I actually want to do? So, for example, and this isn't quite improv, it's theatre, but um, a friend of mine came out of the same university of me, as me uh, and she immediately became a director in a really good theatre company. And I was like, oh, I'm so jealous. Like, I have this terrible secretarial job. <laughs> it's all going very badly. Not to slag off secretarial work, but just it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. Right. Um, but I was like, would I, do I want to be doing her job? And specifically, she was... Um, directing plays that I wasn't interested in. Like I, I didn't want to direct yes. those plays. And actually the style was different than mine. I was like, okay, it's given me a good kick up the bum to go and get my career sorted, but I actually don't want her job. And I don't want her to not have her job. I want her to be having a good time. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So, you know, it's just, what can you, what can you learn from what you see in others that you're desperate for? Um, and, and how can you go action that yourself in a way that is useful and creative? As long as it's positive and you're doing something towards achieving that thing, then I think it can actually be quite useful. But if it's just like, oh, I hate them, then you just become bitter and you're not going to achieve anything. So yeah. that's my... Resentful. Resentment, and resentment's a poison, a toxin. Yes. So William Blake wrote a beautiful a poem about the poison tree. Uh, oh yeah how resentments kill us um now fear of missing out you know i started as an older person with a, yeah. and i had knee replacements hip replacements and i had all kinds of things i couldn't do sit stand kneel to save my life yeah. i couldn't yeah. do it so what about the fear of missing out well what would you tell me about that I think it's important to know what you want, first of all. So I know when, um, so as I get older and I have my priorities change a little bit and, you know, you, you need to see your family and all these kind of things or not need to or want to, you know. Um, so there's the, that kind of balance, which is really tough and I'm still working on it. But it, sometimes it's just worth going, actually, I would like, I would prefer a night off. <laughs> That's why I've chosen to not do this show. And to embrace that, because I think when I was 20, I'd just be like, I want to do seven nights a week. I just want to be doing shows the whole time. I don't want to miss out. But then and I can pick and choose a little bit more now. And actually, if there's something I've chosen not to do, then it's kind of like, good. Then um, there's, I think it's love of missing out or something, isn't it? Um, there's a there's a, a new acronym, which is like the appreciation of missing out, like well done me for choosing not to go. But I think, you know, similar to the jealousy thing, if, if you're like, oh, I'm not included, then make that happen for yourself in a different way. Right. You know, that's the and and um, my coach is named Jay Suko. I don't know if you've ever met him. I or know Jay. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. He's wonderful. Shout out to Jay. Yeah, Jay. <laughs> anyway, um, we talk about, you know, times where I failed an audition to, an audition to be in a group. And mm -hmm. why would I want to be in a group that doesn't want me? Right? Yeah. Now, totally. what's that about? You mm -hmm. know? So I'm learning to change my perspective and be grateful for what I had seen as failures and see them as growth in a different way. Um, mm -hmm. I love the ladder metaphor as well, because uh, sometimes we climb the ladder of success, we get to the top only to realize we've climbed the wrong ladder. Oh, yeah, totally. Mm. <laughs> And the inner critic, you know, as a therapist, I work a lot with people's thoughts that are self-deprecating and destructive. And that inner critic, tell me how you've struggled. If you, I think you have probably. Oh, yeah. <laughs> how struggles with your inner critic, Katie? 
Oh, mine's constant. I have anxiety and depression, so I have. I've. I feel like I've grouped all the strategies for myself, and they they do work pretty well. But I feel like meditation is great. Doing something that moves your body is great because that's like a moving meditation, whether it's yoga or going for a run or whatever. Those are the ones that work for me. I know for some people, like lifting weights and things, is really nice. So distractions that are also helpful for you and allow you to be mindful. But I think also that kind of CBT approach of just questioning them, what you think isn't necessarily true. So it's worth going, oh, am I a terrible improviser? Probably not if this is the career I have. <laughs> like if I was really terrible, would I still be working? Probably not, you know? So it's just questioning if you have those thoughts and you know, chatting to your mates because they're going to tell you what they think is true or not. So if you're like, oh, I'm awful, I do, you know, they're going to be like, I don't think you are. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, it's just my brain. Um, I mean, I'm sure you've got much better advice in your in your line of work. But those are the things that definitely work for me, just questioning it, sharing it and making sure I take good care of my, you know, my brain health in general. Absolutely. And that includes the body. Sometimes we're just like talking heads and we forget about our, oops, sorry, our whole body. And I think it's really important to, you know, play with our body as well. I love workshops that start with just physical walking around mm. with a string connected to the top of my head. Now, getting back to where you studied in the States at IO and Second City and the Annoyance and UCB, was UCB in New York or? Um, uh, yeah, I did a little a little bit in New York, but also we had um, when the May Days was quite young, we'd bring over teachers. Um, so we had a, a guy called Jay Roderick came over and trained us for a week or two. Um, so we we would often pick and choose and bring teachers over. So although a couple of the May Days did go through the UCB program in the States, we more like trained ourselves with with teachers from UCB. Although I did go there when I was in a Del Close Marathon. So we took some, I took some classes. Well, DCM. What I was in DC. I went to the DCM 14. Which one did you go to? Do you remember? Oh, what number was it? Oh, man, I don't remember. It was probably about seven years ago. Yeah, I think mine was like, I can't remember exactly maybe 2013. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. But Amy, Maybe it was the same. Maybe it was the same. And Amy Poehler and Matt Walsh, um, mm -hmm. um, they did uh, the ASCAT, which I loved. I cool. just loved them, seeing them in person. And some other brilliant improvisers, actors were there as well. And they had a moment where they said, um, who's from farthest away? And I was from Florida, you know, New York City. So I got to go on stage and improvise. Well doing this maybe a year, not much more than that. I was like a deer in headlights, you know, I didn't know what to do. And I had a, a friend of my stepson's was there and in the audience, and I just kind of focused on him, but it was such mm. an incredible experience. Well, this is about you, not about me. But, oh, that's uh, lovely, though. That's really nice. It would be funny if we were there at the same one. That was true. Yeah, maybe. And now you've got a you've got a huge body of work for someone so young. I mean, <laughs> thank you, darling. Incredible <laughs> the videos and the shows that you've done. You've got wonderful energy, and um, I'm going to be sending people to your site and to your videos when we. Oh, thank you. Because it's it's really fantastic. A very funny woman finalist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you are very funny. And did that come from your family? Was your family? funny or was there or were you the funny person and how many children were in your family by the way no one's ever asked me if my family was funny i love that question um yeah my dad's a children's author and i think he's he's funny in in yeah they're all funny yeah they are a nice fun uh family and they get it we have slightly different senses of humor i think my dad's like some classic dad jokes but also he liked doing different voices and stuff all the time um, and because he was a writer, very creative, amazing at storylines and stuff and building character. My mum would always tell little anecdotes that I found hilarious and would send me like little jokes when she wrote to me when I was at university. Um, me and my brother shared a very similar sense of humour. So, yeah, it was me, my sister, my brother. I'm the youngest. Um, yeah. So that that was the kind of vibe. I think me and my brother had quite a dark sense of humour. Um, and me and my sister... I would say in the last 
maybe 10 years, we've got a lot closer than we, because we're nine years apart, which is quite a big gap. And I think only now that we're both like proper adults, have we've started really getting quite close. Um, so we go to the theater together and, and enjoy the same kind of stuff, some good drama and good acting. So, yes. I love the West Side in London. I've been to London several times. I just adore it. I almost got a job there once, but I know I stayed home. Anyway, <laughs> it's my risk-taking ability. Now, uh, I know your brother. What's your brother's name? Nigel. Nigel. And your sister? Louisa. Louisa. And did you do little plays and shows when you were a little girl and growing up? Did you put on performances at all for the family? I think so when we were like super young, but I don't, I don't remember loads of my childhood, to be honest. Um, I think I was more creating my own. I, th I think that did happen when I was super young that my family would do stuff together or play, try and play instruments together and things. But what I mostly remember is being quite solo, like going and playing in the bottom of my garden and inventing worlds. I think it was much more in my head than it was out loud. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So being the baby of the family, mm -hmm. I think that affected you. Did you get more attention or less? Because a lot of times, do you have children yet or not? Are you? I don't. And I'm, I'm child free. I'm, I'm, I've opted out. <laughs> so, uh, but I was going to say that. Uh, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. Wait a minute. Let's <laughs> travel back in time. Um mm -hmm. Being the youngest, sometimes you get a little bit more attention or, you know, when the first child comes from what I hear, uh, everybody's super careful, you know, something drops on the floor, they mm -hmm. wash right away. By the second and third, something drops on the floor, put it in their mouth anyway. This is a five second. <laughs> Easier parents once they have, you know, several children. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's in their family, but if they were musical and writing and creative, they probably were a fun family. Yeah, I I didn't have any like big family issues or dramas growing up, which was lovely. I think um, I had I had a couple of different kind of vibes going on because definitely I, I got attention because I was the youngest and the rules were all relaxed, as you say, like, eh, whatever, they won't die, you know, after they've had two kids. But I think it was interesting because I got a bit of messaging to be like, don't show off. But I think I've really strongly internalized that. So I get a lot of guilt about performing, which is quite a thing that I have to work on. And I think that's partly why I like teaching so much is that I can help enable other people to do the stuff that, you know, I need to uh, step over that feeling of like, don't show off. So knowing that improvisation is, I'm making you look good, even though I'm performing and I may be taking center stage, we are still working together and that feels less kind of vain. <laughs> But then I ruined that by then going doing written solo shows, which is totally all about me. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm so glad you do that. Now, you do a two-person show. I know Susan and Rachel are the wonderful models. I was so happy to get mm. to watch them when I was visiting Chicago. And um, is her name uh, Chris? What is her? Oh, I'm sorry. I was thinking about Chris Mead. I just fell into Chris Mead. But uh, Rachel Blackman is your two-person duo? I have a few. Rachel's my first and uh, possibly, I think, longest running. So we we did a, we saw TJ and Dave, you know, years and years ago, maybe 2005. And we were like, oh, this is the best improv we've ever seen. We want to do that. So then we immediately went back to England and started trying to do our version, which, you know, morphed and changed and became our thing. Still slow burn. Uh, a lot in common with that type of show. Um, and we did that for solidly for 10 years. And then here and there, then we did shows every couple of months or something. And we did a, a, a residency in Zurich last year. So, and we still occasionally play together. But, and Chris has been, so that's Katie and Rach. And then with Chris, we've been doing a duo for uh, 10 years now gone very quickly we actually had a third person in that team for a while as well and he left maybe five or six years ago um but yeah they were often duos because one of us couldn't make it <laughs> but now it's me and chris so we do a science fiction show so katie and rach very naturalistic very everyday nothing extraordinary happened with me and chris 
like time travel and like lots of crazy stuff and space and everything. But then I have other ones as well. I do something called Brand New Musical with a Lloydy James Lloyd. Um, and that is a kind of Sondheim, Jason Robert Brown kind of show. Huh? So again, pretty realistic, apart from the fact that it becomes songs. <laughs> um and i do yeah but i love doing two-person shows so there's some others that i do occasionally as well including a rom-com with a guy called ed farger where we we ask for a movie that was not a rom-com and then we make it into a rom-com so like jaws or alien or love that <laughs> jurassic park and then we make them into a rom-com which is oh. fun <laughs> and you mentioned i love chris mead i was able to study mm. with his newsletter he's such a fantastic person and yeah, quite amazing yeah really great yeah i think improv improvisers are pretty brilliant but you know <laughs> bias you know since i started improv all my friends are improv improvisers it's crazy yeah. um where's those other people i used to know mm -hmm. <laughs> now if you had a choice between performing and teaching and you had to pick mm. one which, oh, Mm. Man, that's really hard. I don't know. They're both so great. <laughs> oh, man. I think they, the thing is, they flow into each other. So in, in teaching, I learn about performing more. Like I'm constantly learning by teaching other people and by, you know, and, and vice versa. It's just, they're so valuable for each other. I can yeah, learn about my performance from from my students from from teaching my students. And oh, yeah, and, and I think doing you can't really teach if you're not also discovering and doing shows. So I don't think I don't think you can separate them. So Question. I'm annoyingly not going to answer. <laughs> um, a beloved teacher just passed away recently, Keith Johnston. And had you studied with him at all or? Um, no, I had it, but I think we, a lot of people, particularly in the UK, have come across his work and his methods because he, when you go to theatre school, that that's this that was sort of the accepted understanding of improvisation, the whole status thing. Um, yeah, so that that's definitely in my lexicon, but I didn't I didn't go study with him. I honestly I didn't I just didn't feel like I wanted to. I know that sounds really bad, um, but I just I felt like the sort of io style i felt like that filled up my heart and was oh just so perfect for me and the more british kind of um yeah status heavy kind of i don't know it felt a bit too masculine or something for me <laughs> well i call so. myself a spolin, a spolin disciple and uh a lot of spolin is what i use when i teach and i just that's my foundation and there's other yeah. things as well but that's my gig, man. So, yeah. uh, so. But I do just to say, I think Patty's really amazing. Patty Styles, and she She's obviously sick. Yes, she is, isn't she? Fabulous. Yeah. I love She's her. A, She's a great director. I was lucky enough to work with her as as a cast member, and you know, I think she has a lot of insight and actually makes some of the stuff that I didn't quite get um, from from Keith's work that I came across a lot more from her so that's cool so yeah I and i think every school has something we can learn even if it's not our first love there's always something to absolutely to use and find yeah absolutely now there's a lot of different names for long form let's mm -hmm. explore all the names of long form if you don't mind yeah, and sure. talk about them a little bit from your experience what was the first long form you did did it have a name oh my gosh Mm. Uh, I think we just made it up <laughs> because we didn't have any American style long form at the time it in London and all the UK it was very much like narrative or directed so like a mid form kind of thing or very theatrical so it didn't have that kind of montage vibe so I, I think with the May Days, we kind of read all the books and we'd see, me and Rachel had seen a lot of long form, but not, we weren't, we were more learning short form bits of long form. Um, but we weren't like learning a Herald or anything at Second City. We were learning improv, but not in that way. Um, so yeah, I think we kind of cobbled together a montage, to be honest. 
I think that was our first show, <laughs> as far yeah. as I remember. Yeah. The names are Harold and Armando. And could you speak on those? Like when you were yeah. in the, you were probably studying the Harold, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, we did the Harold at IO. Uh, obviously, that's their sort of classic form. Um, but it's so different because I, I went and relearned it or learned a different version of it at a school in London called the FA as well. And just two completely different approaches. And I also hear a lot of people saying they don't really like the Harold, which is very interesting because to me, it's just a set of tools and it's just a kind of the pot that we put those tools in. It's quite useful for callbacks and characters and different ways of moving about through time and characters. It's like it's got all those useful tools in it. So I don't feel like it's the the grail of um, improv, but I can see why it's such a useful tool. But I think because people feel like it's super rigid that they don't enjoy it as much, but it doesn't have to be rigid. So I think if, if someone's listening to this and wondering whether they should do Harold, I think it's less about the Harold and more about like, well, what school feels like the vibe you want, you know? Um, so with FA, it's quite prescriptive, which is not a bad thing, it's just different. So it'd be like you own your own journey through this show. Someone else can't initiate for you. Or at least that was the training I had sort of, oh, I was ages ago now, maybe 10 years ago or something. Um, and I found that annoying because I was like, oh, but there's loads of people on stage. Like any of us could could come up with something. So why does it have to all be on one person? Whereas IO is a lot more free and like whoever's got something and let's all work together. And I kind of preferred that. I thought that was nice. Um, so yeah, I, I really like Harold. And actually there's something I do, um, there's something I do with long form classes when I teach Harold or long form in London. Um, I'll, there'll be a week when they're all right up in their heads about like how hard it is and all the different beats and stuff. And I'll be like, okay, tonight there's one rule. We can't do Harold. So nobody do a Harold. We're just gonna do some long form. No one do a Harold. It's just illegal. We can do anything else. You can edit and do whatever you want, but you can't do Harold. Inevitably they do have perfect Harolds <laughs> because they're not worried about it anymore. And you're like, hey, funny thing. I just wrote down the scenes you did and it, uh, you did a Harold. <laughs> So I think the pressure of it can feel like a lot for some people. Um, Armando, I adore Armando. I love it. I love it. It suits me. I really enjoy it. I love having a guest, hearing all their cool stories and then just picking out little scene ideas from it and playing. Ugh, I adore it. I was lucky enough to go play Armando at the, the main stage at IO Chicago. And it was, I had the best time, man. There's another improviser who we sadly missed, Noah. Um, but he was fabulous and yeah, I love that show because it's really free, but you can also still make all those lovely connections and, or not, like it's so unpressured. And when you have a really good monologist, uh, Jason Chin was incredible at, yeah. at being a monologist. Another one, I know, um, he was fabulous and he, he trained the Maydays quite a lot in the early days and was fabulous, but, oh man, they were some of the best shows, I think for me to watch and play in. Doing the monologue. I like being a monologist. It's so great. I just enjoy it so much. I really do. And I've, I've been teaching that too. I teach people with Parkinson's disease mm. improv. And we just started doing that last week. So uh, they're really terrific. They've been with me a few years, but again, not about me, Margo. <laughs> oh, I'm so interested though. How, how does that affect people with Parkinson's? How, what is, how do they feel about it? Like, oh, I want to know all about it. <laughs> they love it. I've been doing this for over years now. And, um, you know, I was doing it in real time. Now it's online with people from around the country and sometimes the world. And so they love this simple exercise. I always start with music. We start with music and movement. Um, we play simple games. We do simple scenes. We've put on two shows already. We did a show and um a valentine's show and had over 30 participants in the zoom audience giving suggestions playing with mm -hmm. us and you know some people the disease has progressed and so their movements are restricted they often in parkinson's my dad had parkinson's that's how i got into it they have what they call a mask like expression they have a facial mask um like this people can't see but and so we do a lot of things with our faces and move our faces and do emotion work. 
And sometimes there's some cognitive impairment. So we go very, very slow and no mistakes, no failures is constantly being reinforced. And um, I just, and their care partners come as well. So it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. I, every Saturday morning I'm doing it. It's just great. Maybe you come visit us one day. <laughs> you know, that, that reminds me of a game. Do you know uh, Creature Comforts? It's a, it's a game with your face. You might know it by a different name, but basically around four people sit in chairs and they all put their faces down and you ask them to try and pull lots of different expressions. And then you go, okay, this one. And they freeze whichever facial expression they've got. And like, and then that's their character. You can't, obviously you can't see me, but it's like, if they've got a kind of inane grin, then their character will just talk with that inane grin and it just inspires whatever they're gonna say. Um, and they don't talk about why their face is like that. That's just who they are. So it, it sort of helps people channel characters that they wouldn't normally think yes. of because it yes. just changes what they say. They always know what to say. Absolutely. Without, and they, their monologues don't have to relate to one another. You just kind of edit between them like it's a little weird documentary. It's really nice. I'm sure you've no, come across I something similar. That. I love that game. And I do that with music as well. And oh, so great. I'll freeze <clears throat> and I'll spotlight someone. <laughs> yeah, great. Or sometimes I've got a couple of, um, you know, part partnerships in the group. So I'll go, okay, freeze, Anita and Steve. And so they'll, their faces to talk to each other. It's a marvelous game. It's thing about games. They have so many different names that we can mm. use. Well, um, I wanted to go back in the past again, though, uh, mm -hmm. and talk about, were there any comedies or shows that you particularly liked when you were growing up or in high school um, that kind of influenced you maybe a little bit in the comedy vein? Yeah, I think I've always been really into watching comedy. I feel like I watched every sitcom there was when I grew up. I'd stay up late and watch late night comedy stuff, including Whose Lines It Anyway. Um, so many. I think I, I was obsessed with a British sitcom called Red Dwarf, which is a science fiction sitcom, which oh. a lot of Americans haven't come across. They tried to do an American remake and there was a pilot and it was the worst thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> But it's basically the last man uh, in space, just on this giant spaceship. Um, and it came out when I was about eight years old. And then the first five series of it were just excellent. And then it kind of a little bit diminishing returns, but it is one of the best. And it's watchable now. I've gone back and rewatched it. And it's, it's just brilliant. So that was a huge influence on me. And I think probably contributes to me liking science fiction, although I like loads of different science fiction. I used to sneakily read, I mean, I know you didn't, you asked about comedy, but I used to, I was told I wasn't allowed to read horror. So obviously I went and read all the horror I could find. Lots and lots of Stephen King. Yes, yeah. So I feel like <laughs> uh, horror and science fiction hugely influenced my work, but I also, for comedy, yeah, loads of sitcoms. There was another one called Black Books um, uh, which was uh, a guy called Bill Bailey, who's a brilliant, brilliant comedian who I've seen live quite a lot. He's a musical comedian, but also just really delightful and very funny and does long rambly stories. Um, in my scripted work, I would say I was quite influenced by people like Mike Babiglia, who have like a really big story. Um, as well as telling jokes, there's something, there's a larger theme and there's an actual like narrative behind it. So I love, I love stuff like that. I think that's really powerful. Um, who else kind of, yeah, again, a lot of British kind of comedians like Joe Brand and, uh, Sue Perkins again, you might, you might not have heard of them, but the, yeah, a lot of, a lot of TV. I watch stand up shows loads as well a lot an awful lot of circuit comedians in live shows for years and years love it <laughs> conan o'brien needs a friend the conan <laughs> and i'm telling you i i he did so many of them during the pandemic and it's just brilliant people who are on a lot of improvisers come on and i just love listening to conan needs a friend it's the cool. If you ever get a chance to listen to it, it is funny. It is funny. What are you reading right now, Katie? What am I what, sorry? What are you reading right now? Oh, what am I reading? I just finished a book uh, called uh, Strong Female Character 
by Fern Brady, finished it yesterday. And it's about um, a female Scottish comedian uh, who has autism, who she got a diagnosis in her early 40s and this kind of reminiscing about her life and how what a challenge that's been and what she's learned about it and it's is brilliant it's absolutely brilliant fascinating book so it's about a woman coming up in comedy and finding all the all the difficulties not only that come with autism but also in the comedy world which is difficult anyway so that that's amazing I've really enjoyed that well that sounds great I'm gonna have to look for it that sounds wonderful Mm -hmm. inspiring yes Mm -hmm. yeah it's really good and funny (laughs) Now you do a lot of scripted work too. You write a lot. You're a, a voracious writer as well as writer. <laughs> I imagine. Yes, um, I'm currently working on. Uh, I just got funding, which is really hard to get in the UK, <laughs> to support me writing a, a play. Last year, I was in the Arctic as part of a artist residency on a boat in the Arctic Circle with lots of. <laughs> Uh, visual artists, filmmakers, oh. poets, oh. you name it. Um, and I, I was there as a playwright. There was one other playwright who made who makes shows for children. Um, so it's taken a year to get the everything together. But yeah, so I'm writing a, a sort of creepy, slightly horror-y uh, show that also has a lot of lightness and comedy in it um, for, for a theatre down the road from me. for a a three-week run. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. Brilliant. I just love that. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. The scariest book you ever read, I'm going to tell you, one of mine was (laughs) Stand. I was was living alone and reading it at night, (sighs) and it was really creepy. How about one of your favorite horror books? Well, I love all of everything of Stephen King, and I'm actually reading the third, The Tower, like uh, you know dark tower book from stephen king um but uh there was one i think it's called rain rain dogs and i can't remember who wrote it but it's really creepy it's about all these monkeys that start getting like murderous and hyper intelligent it's really creepy and you will not trust monkeys ever <laughs> it's yeah that's very creepy that one so a show that you're working on right now you're working on scripted show and yeah. and if you could pick any actors in the world any actors in the world who cast in your show katie oh that's such a great question oh i think mm, um there's a that's that's tough man i'm gonna it's gonna take me like a week to <laughs> to think about that uh i don't know sit here and wait for a week and you know (laughs) oh man I don't know it's hard come back to me when I've like finished writing it and then I'll be like these four people (laughs) on that absolutely (laughs) yeah well there's such a wealth of theater in London it's just so beautiful Mm -hmm. at times that I've been able to go to shows there have been amazing and you're right there right yeah yeah, it's incredible. I'm very lucky to be doing something on an off West End theatre and it's so such a cool place. But yeah, it's it's great to watch work around here, you know. So there's a little app where you can get cheaper West End tickets and stuff. The other day I saw um, a one man theatre show with no set or anything um, by a guy called Tim Crouch, who's this really well known theatre practitioner in the UK. And he was just it was just him and a fake VR helmet where he would describe a a made up theater audience. Um, And it was kind of like exploring the idea that theater might be dead because of all the new digital advances. And it was incredible, amazing show. I wanted to ask earlier, you grew up with technology and computers? Uh, Half and half. I'm like, I'm halfway between Gen X and uh millennials so i actually didn't i didn't have a phone until i was about 24. everyone i knew did but they but i didn't want one (laughs) um and i didn't i didn't have the internet till i was about 16 or i wasn't really using it for anything until then so you know my childhood was pretty devoid of tech to be honest i once you got Sorry, I could I could write on a computer, which was great. You know, I learned I taught myself to touch type when I was quite young, just by forcing myself not to look at the keyboard. 
Um, so I so I really appreciated having that as a device. But yeah, I didn't. It's not a means of writing. You don't write by hand. No, you write by computer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> writing by hand is strenuous, but sometimes it's nice to feel pen on paper, pencil on paper, whatever. Um, so because I've taken a lot of writing classes, I love to write myself. But I'm I'm a lazy. Girl, not like you. You're an energetic woman. <laughs> Love it. So, um, I was wondering about video games. Have you ever gotten to video games? And and because sci sci-fi, I think about video games as well. Well, I work with a company um, called Fandco, and we've been making improv shows in virtual reality. So that's very exciting. Yes. So there's, yes. it's not a game as such, but there are gamey elements and the audience get to feed in. But, but one project we did do with that company that wasn't improv, uh, we did write a game, uh, a, a slightly interact, an interactive story game which was you'd set up a little tiny, you get a package, which comes with a tiny theater that you can set up on your coffee table. It comes with a little projecting tower. So it projects scenery on the back. And then you play the game on your phone, which gives you augmented reality. So on your phone, you can see the characters on the set and you get to play little games sometimes to help the characters like take off in their spaceship or, you know, press the right buttons and things. So yeah, kind of, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. What is that called? That's called Transportalists. Um, and the show is Beth's Legacy. I'm putting it in the chat for you. Great. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, listen, I am so grateful to have this time with you today. I mean, really, this has been so much fun. And I hope you've had a little bit of fun as well, Katie. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely talking to you. Thank you. And thank you for asking me if I had a funny family, because that's a lovely question and no one's ever asked me that. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. And um, I think that once I take a class with you, which I hope will be in the next decade, I don't know when <laughs> to take it I'll, I'll have a chat with you again and do you have any suggestions or advice for people that are thinking about improv what would you say to somebody just starting out to be your words of wisdom yeah i think for people that have never done improv i think it can sound really scary or like someone's going to point at you and be like you be funny now and it's really not that it's very much about creation and collaboration and, and as margot said like there aren't you can't make mistakes you can just learn how to hit hit the good things more often like you can't mess it up so actually for people that come in quite shy or scared they nearly always go like going i'm coming back this is so much fun so try it give it a try the hardest thing is going to your first ever class then it gets Absolutely. so much easier <laughs> Oh, thank you. You're so lovely and beautiful. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate our chat, Katie. Have a wonderful day and hopefully I'll be seeing you sometime. Thanks so much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.